All right, welcome to another edition of Not Your Father's Data Center. I am your host, Raymond Hawkins. Today, we are joined by the Computer and Communications Industry Association's Vice President of Public Policy out of Washington, D.C., Arthur Sidney. Arthur, how are you today, sir? I'm doing great, Raymond. How are you? I'm doing great. There's a lot of uh, there's a lot in that title, so if you don't mind, just we'll we'll lead right off with first of all the vice president of public policy. What do you do? And second of all, what does the computer and communications industry association do? Great. Well, thank you for that question. I'm Arthur Sidney. I represent the computer and communication industry. We are a 50 year old tech association. If you can imagine that. I don't even know what tech was like 50 years ago. <laughs> yeah, well, what, are, what, what were we representing 50 years ago? <laughs> I don't know, but we, we were doing it and doing it well. Um, we represent small, medium, and large tech companies, and we have uh, an interest in, of course, the issue we'll be talking about today, representing a lot of the companies that are affected by these bills, Google, Apple, Facebook, Amazon, amongst others. And so we deal with our mission is open, open mission, open uh, rather open markets, uh, open systems, interoperation, transparency are all things that are the, the bedrock of the Computer and Communication Industry Association. And we focus on issues ranging from intellectual property, you know, copyright and patents, to competition law, obviously, um, intermediary liability with content moderation, and basically any issue that deals with tech, telecommunications, 5G, you name it. Is the association headquartered there in D.C., Arthur? It is headquartered in D.C. We have an office in Brussels. There are probably, I'd say, about 22 of us, uh, okay. maybe 11 in Washington or a little less, and about uh, 10 or so in our Brussels office. But we gotcha. work on matters international as well as domestic. Okay. All right. And and so as an association, are there, do the companies um, pay a dues? How, how, tell me a little bit how it works as the organizations you guys represent. Are there, there, is it a like a dues card carrying part of, of an association? How does that work? Yeah, we're, we're a nonprofit uh, 501c6 and we have members about 28, little, well, 20, between 28 and 35. Don't know the exact number right now, but we've got a lot of members and they are dues paying members. And we uh, are involved, as I mentioned, in all the major fights here in Washington and around the world, championing these issues of open markets, open systems and interoperability. Okay. So it keeps us gotcha. very busy. And it says computers and communication. Are most of your customers the tech companies then? I say customers, members, I guess is the right way to say it. Yeah, well, we have a large a large percentage of them are tech companies. We also have telecommunication companies. We have companies that deal with the internet infrastructure. And so we pride ourselves on having members at every level of the tech ecosystem. Okay, I got you. All right. All right, so we got a little bit of a, a primer on what CCIA does. Uh, let's let's hit pause on that and let's uh, let's understand a little bit about you. So where's home? Where do you come from? Uh, I don't think you uh, would have any idea who Ben Roethlisberger is. Not that I might have a preview on that, but <laughs> so so let's hear a little bit about you, Arthur, if you don't mind. Sure. Happy to share about me. So I'm Arthur Sidney. As I mentioned, I was born and grew up in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. 
had an interesting background in that I was in the International Baccalaureate program there in Pittsburgh. So it allowed me to uh, become fluent in Spanish. I, I majored in Spanish. I took my A-levels. The IB system in Pittsburgh was a way to integrate the schools there. And so I had a top-rate, uh, first-rate uh, education at Shenley High School, which is now um, no longer existence. It's now um, apartment buildings. But oh, uh, wow. Andy, Andy Warhol and a bunch of great folks went there, a lot of jazz greats. And it's right in downtown Oakland in Pittsburgh, one of the cultural centers there. Pittsburgh is a great cultural town. But yeah, I did intellectual, uh, I'm sorry, international baccalaureate, which I'm very proud to say. I studied uh, Spanish, was one of my majors, and it also afforded me an opportunity to uh, get advanced credits in college, which I then later went used to study abroad in Africa uh, and do some other cool things and uh, have extra credits to graduate early. So it was a great educational opportunity. It was a public school, so that's a pitch for, for public yeah, schools. Yeah, for, for public, public school. Schools. All right. And another claim to fame for Shinley High School, it is not mine, I just happened to have gone there, is that it was the first multi-million dollar high school in the country. Uh, you can look this up on Wikipedia. Yeah. In, wow, in really? Pittsburgh, yeah. So so from as far as a building perspective or from a budget perspective, first multi-million dollar building ever? I'm assuming it's the building. I didn't building, I didn't look yeah. deeply. I Googled it myself. Sometimes yeah, I get yeah. nostalgic since Dear Shinley right, High is no longer there. Yeah. yeah Shinley yeah. Spartans. Uh, the Shinley Spartans. All right. Very good. All right. Well, uh, and, then, uh, and then from there, uh, uh, to keep talking about me, if you want to know a little bit more, I went to Vassar yeah. College after uh, after Shenley, uh, majoring in international studies and Africana studies. And so I spent, as I shared before, a lot of time uh, on the continent of Africa and uh, minored in Spanish, economics, and I think religion. I had a lot of, a lot of interest. I was a nerd. All right, we got to spend some time on Africa. Where in Africa did you go? <laughs> So my first time in Africa was in Kenya and Tanzania, where I studied back in, gosh, back in the early 90s, yeah, the early 90s. Um, yeah, I was trying to fact check that day. It was the early 90s and uh, studied at Nairobi. I went through the Sarah Lawrence uh, exchange program there and I was able to study and study Kiswahili amongst other things. The other thing that's interesting about me as well, because of my international baccalaureate background, I have a knack for languages. So I'm fluent in Spanish, uh, speak Portuguese, studied Italian. I'm not fluent in Italian. I can read it, but speaking, not so good, and study Japanese. So I, I've loved all things international, enjoy travel, and Vassar afford me that opportunity with a great liberal arts education. Um, it was a um, Great, just a great education. And then from Vassar, I went on to Howard Law School. And there I was still involved with international. International law was one of my passions. Uh, immediately after Howard Law, I went back to law school as if I couldn't, if I didn't get enough law at school in the first place. I took the bar exam right after my uh, uh, third year in, um, in law school, well, way back when, passed the bar, and then uh, was completing my. Uh, studies in the LLM program at Americans American University's Washington College of Law, where I studied international business transactions and international trade. And then from there, I had this this burning sensation in my heart to do trade work. I did trade work for almost nine or ten years at the Department of Commerce, where I litigated cases before the federal courts, international courts, and tribunals. And uh, after that, I hold on, hold on, Arthur. What what kind of cases when you were there in, in the um, Department of Commerce? What kinds of cases get brought there? 
Yeah. Just so because I, I got and this is personal interest. What 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 shows up as an international attorney for the Department of Commerce in a litigious nature there. Sure. So part of my function was that did a lot of administrative law advising the staff there on the uh, um, uh, the various laws and provisions of international trade, namely uh, anti-dumping duty and countervailing duty law, very specific area of law, uh, and the uh, Tariff Act of 1930. And so the kind of cases that we would see is when domestic industry would sue or uh, would, would sue foreign companies for, for trade violations. Uh, we would litigate those matters when they were brought to the Court of International Trade, the Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit, uh, even worked on one Supreme Court case um, uh, way back when on, on zeroing on a very particular issue. And so um, had a very great experience there and broad exposure to the practice of law and um, an international. So what trade. you guys represent as attorneys, you guys would represent the U.S. government in those matters. We represent the U.S. government. Exactly. Okay, I got you. So if I'm a corporation and I'm bringing litigation against a corporation in another country, eventually that gets into the appellate system and moves up in the system and you guys represent the U.S. interest in that. I got you. Exactly. That's right. Got it. Got it. Got it. Very interesting. All right. Well, very cool. All right. So um, love the time in Africa. So so I've only been through the airport in Kenya. I've spent most of my time in Africa, in Uganda, in Ethiopia, and Sudan. Oh, wow. I've uh, uh, been to all three of those countries multiple times. But but uh, I, I love Africa. I think it's a spectacular place. And I think uh, until you have experienced Africa personally, it's hard to understand just how vast it is, how how gigantic it is. Um, I read somewhere, and I don't know if this is true, so so we're we're getting a little off of the data center and the and the and the computer communications. But I read somewhere that that um, the continent of Africa on most of our maps is actually shown smaller than it actually is. Because if you actually show it how big it is, it, it really, really kind of distorts the size of the map. Um, and, the, and the way I, I saw this is they gave you the number of kilometers across the, you know, the top half of the continent. And it's, you know, I don't know, something like 1,000 or 1,200 kilometers wider than North America. But it doesn't look that way on a map because if it did, it would be so disproportionate. And, and I will say this, having flown around Africa in small, um, you know, airplanes, the vastness of that continent and, and the countries on that continent are just breathtaking. I mean, f it goes forever in trees upon trees upon trees. It's just, it's just a beautiful place. I, I love spending time in Africa and I love agree. serving over there. Yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. Uh, I, I think I was told it's about six times the size of the United States. That sounds extremely large, maybe not six. It's, it's huge. It it's is a lot bigger. Yeah. <laughs> a lot bigger than the United States. And to your point earlier about the places that I've been, so I studied in Kenya and Tanzania, but uh, I've uh, worked and studied in um, South Africa, uh, been to uh, Lesotho, Iswatini now, and a bunch, just a bunch of other, Egypt, Palestine, Israel, uh, Middle East, I guess now, uh, yeah. But, uh, yeah. but all over, all over the continent as well. And it is a really? fascinating place with so much topography, so many oh, different languages and people and great food. The people are warm and it's a, just a beautiful place with a lot of, a lot of history. That, that's uh, – I think that may be the two of the things that stood out to me the most when I go to Africa is I think our education here in the U.S. as far as what other countries have gone through, hearing the the history of each country. So I was in Sudan, which is now – actually, I was in the very southern part of Sudan, which is now South Sudan, the newest country in the world, and hearing their history with the north and, and hearing uh, you know uh, how, what they've been through and hearing my friends in Uganda and the history of Uganda, just fascinating to hear – 
personal stories, and, and I would agree with you, the warmth of the people in Africa, just their willingness to communicate and connect with you and share their personal stories. I think one of my favorite things on my first trip to Africa, um, we're there working during the day, it's lunchtime, and after lunch, everybody says, hey, we're going to go home and we'll be back around three. And I said, well, hold on a minute, where, where are we going? And they said, hey, we all go home in the early afternoon. And I'm like, well, what are we going to do? I, you know, I thought, you know, I've got my American mindset, hey, you know, we got our 30 minute lunch and let's get back to work. And they said, no, 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 we all go home for a couple hours. We'll be back. And I'm like, well, what are we going to do when we go home? And the my African friend said to me, he goes, Raymond, we're just going to talk to each other. And I'm like, wait a minute, we're not going to get anything done. We don't have any, you know, uh, presentations to prepare. He goes, no, we're just going to go home and talk and we'll come back in a couple hours. And uh, I just love that spirit and that uh, warmth and that connection and that friendship. I mean, and they were like, hey, Raymond, come home with us. Uh, I just thought that was great. I really, really love it there. All right. So anyway, Isn't that interesting? To, to your point, if we did more of that here, just spending time talking to one another, fellowshipping with one another, what a better place. Here, here. Already a great country, but you know what, what a better place it would be. Respecting yeah, better, our fellow, fellow humans. Yeah, better understanding of each other and a better appreciation. And anyway, I loved that. I, that that to me, I mean, a real personal story of warmth. Hey, Raymond, please come home with us. We're just going to hang out and talk for a couple hours, and then we'll come back to work and we'll get everything done today. But we just want to spend time together. I think that's uh, we don't do enough of that. Cars and work and busy and schedule and uh, just spending time together. Anyway. All right, Arthur, I'll get us back on track. Love the, the Connection Africa, your, your, your gift for language, um, your, your time in the Department of Commerce. We'd love to hear a little bit about your time serving on the Hill. Um, you, you did a good bit of a tour there, and then we'll get into CCIA and, and where tech companies are headed. But, but tell us a little bit about your time on the Hill. I think that's fascinating. Sure. Yeah, no, it was a great opportunity to come to the Hill. I had wanted to come to the Hill for a while. And uh, one of the concerns that I had was that I was getting a little long in the tooth. And when I looked around at Hill staffers, every time here in Washington, when I would see Hill staffers, they looked very young and bushy tailed. And I was getting more older and not as bushy tailed. And so the opportunity came where I was able to start with a member from Texas, uh, Congresswoman Sheila Jackson Lee from the great, uh, great state of Texas down there in Houston. Houston, right? I was going to say yeah. she's out of Houston, right? Yeah. And so I worked with her for about a year and uh, some months, I think a year and two months as her uh, legislative director directing her legislative team and her agenda there. So I got to know New York, uh, not New York, Texas. She, she's from New York originally, but I got to know very well. Um, Texas and, and Houston in particular, and so I have fond memories of my time uh, there helping the people of the 18th Congressional District of Texas. All right. Yeah, yeah. Very, very good. So, after, uh, Oh, sorry. Okay, I was going to say yeah, after, that, after that's what was, who's the next one? Yeah, yeah. It didn't end there. After Ms. Jackson yeah. Lee, I went uh, had the opportunity to serve uh, Mr. Uh, Hank Johnson, Congressman Johnson from the yeah. state of Georgia, another yeah. southern state. Uh, he's from the Atlanta area, Metro Atlanta. And so I served uh, with him as chief of staff, chief counsel for almost 11 plus years. 11, oh, yeah, 11 wow. And uh, he was a great person to work for, a great person to learn from, great leader, a mentor. And uh, he sat on a number of interesting committees at the time from antitrust, uh, from some of the antitrust committees, the intellectual property committees as chair. And so we had a, a good a good run together. We were able to do a lot of good work for people back there in the uh, Georgia's fourth congressional district. Yeah, good stuff. Well, so uh, I'm, I'm from a little town called Griffin, Georgia. I'm right next mm -hmm. to Mr. Johnson's uh, uh, district. So, so I know it well. Very, very cool. So, uh, all right, you got to tell us one good 
um, Hill story that we wouldn't read in the papers. It doesn't have to be salacious, but something that you would say, <laughs> you'd never guess the, the gym is this big or something that we wouldn't know about being on the Hill. And then, uh, and then I'm going to ask you one other Hill question and we'll get into CCIA and the data <laughs> a, center business. A Hill secret question. I don't know if I have any secret questions. Uh, and, you know, there's a tunnel that, that connects the various offices and the, the house floor. And you can walk across uh, and take the Senate tunnels and, and the Senate trolleys, so to speak, to get around. That may not be something that people know, or maybe they know that. So I mean, I'll try to think of something else. So that's that's just for members and their staff, the underground passageways? Or who else? When I was there, there, this is pre-COVID, uh, people that had uh, gained access to the building were allowed to also take it as long as they were escorted by Got a professional staff member or a uh, member of Congress. Um, we have a small house gym there. Okay. That so, so, yeah. so so how tell me, my house question is this then tell me how um, the offices get doled out you know are there are there big palatial offices for the senior you know leadership in each party and does the newest freshman congressman you know get a broom closet how, how big is the spread between the nicest office in the house and the and the crummiest office in the house and where did Sheila Jackson Lee and where did Mr. Johnson's space uh, compare in the in that in that hierarchy. Yeah, you're asking me trick questions that I, I feel you already know the answer. There, of course, is a spread of offices. The more senior the members are, the more apt and prone they are to have a really nice office that's got a view of the Capitol. Everyone on Capitol Hill wants a view of the Capitol such that you can have constituents come in your office and you can take a picture with your member of Congress and get the Capitol in the background. There's, there's the dome, right. <laughs> I got it. Okay. Yeah. So, and both of my members happen to have been, they're both senior members. So they had nice, nice digs and okay. uh, views of the Capitol. And uh, so life, life was good for them. Oh, good, good. All right. Well, cool. So you, you never had to be in the basement in the broom closet. That's good. No, never. <laughs> <laughs> very, very good. All right. Well, cool stuff. I think I think the uh, uh, the inner workings of our government and, and all the roles that get played and all that stuff is fascinating. The history is fascinating. I take my kids to Washington multiple times and, you know, we can spend a week there and, and uh, you could just read nonstop, uh, you know, from the Smithsonian and the Library of Congress and the, you know, the Capitol. It's just fascinating stuff and the monuments. Love it there. So cool stuff. Well, very neat. Well, that's still where you live and you serve there. So let's switch, let's switch gears into CCIA, Computer, Computer Communications and uh, Industry Association. You guys are helping be the voice for that industry uh, around legislation. So let's talk about legislation that's, uh, you know, you hear it on the news. Is got, is tech got too much control? Are they too big? Are they a monopoly? What should we do? I don't know about I probably can't name specific bills, but let's talk about that as a what's the association working on and and, and what's out there legislatively uh, that uh, that could change things the way we all see it today? Well, with respect to uh, working on a lot of different things, but with respect to competition policy, which has been one of the issues that we see on a daily basis in newspapers and on TV, et cetera, uh, we are working on defending and helping ensure that Americans get to maintain access to the services that they that they love and use and that are providing a service. So the Googles, the Apples, the Facebooks, the Amazons of the world that I mentioned, many of most of Americans, they love these products. They've gotten used to these products. Uh, they find the value in them. The products are very value conscious. We either get the services for free or we pay a nominal, a nominal amount of money. 
and we get uh, a great a great deal in return. And, and now more than ever during the pandemic, we're seeing how useful these services are. So the Googles and Apples and Amazons, they've allowed us to work, worship, pray, whatever we need to do uh, during this pandemic and maintain a semblance of normalcy. And so very proud and very happy to uh, work in the tech industry and represent these, these great companies, which are really the hallmark of, of innovators. It is no secret that our tech companies are some of the most preeminent in the world. We have the most successful tech companies because they're good at what they do, uh, because of the ecosystem here in the, in the United States. Uh, we have the appropriate laws that have allowed them to grow and function. We have the appropriate standards. We have agencies that conduct reviews, et cetera. But in spite of all of that, these companies have provided services, continue to innovate. They compete with one another. And uh, Americans, are, they like their services. Yeah. So, so Arthur, is uh, you mentioned in the in the opening that you guys have association members at uh, at all the tiers of what, let's just call it the internet infrastructure. Um, you're using some names that we would all recognize. Uh, you know, we all order stuff from Amazon. Um, I'm, we've all, I'm sure, typed into a Google search engine. Um, I'm certain that most of us have watched something on an Apple product. Uh, I think that's the only thing I watch things on between my Apple TV, my iPhone, and my iPad. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that I've watched anything on anything but an Apple product for a long time. Um, what, what, I recognize that part of the layer uh, of, of the association. What are some other uh, kinds of companies? And you don't have to name names if you don't want to, but would love to hear what other uh, organizations are part of the association and are you guys helping represent their interest? Sure. Uh, we represent, uh, as I mentioned, the, the ones we shared, uh, you know, uh, BT, Rakuten, Stripe, Walt, Twitter, Red Hat, um, Uber, just a wide spectrum, Samsung, Vimeo, Waymo, Intel, uh, most of the iconic brands that individuals know and are aware of and, and find, again, find very valuable. I'm not allowed to uh, name any of our customers due to contractual obligations, but we have some on the list you just rattled off. So that's neat to hear that, uh, that yeah. several of the folks and there's that we more. help with their infrastructure. I don't, I don't want to cast, yeah, yes. I didn't mean, sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. I apologize. No, all good. All good. Yeah. But, but I didn't want to cast aspersions. You know, we have, like I said, about, you know, uh, nearing over 30. So uh, that was just a sample of some of the mm-hmm. members. And no slight against the ones that I didn't mention, but you were you were trying to get a sense of the breadth of the association and who we yeah. represent. And I don't I don't know if I need to go through the entire list so as not to. No, leave that's great. Off. Okay. No, that's great. You mentioned Brussels. Could you tell us a little bit? Uh, you know, I think you know, as we alluded to a little bit with our Africa conversation, we tend to see the world through red, white, and blue glasses here and not think about the rest of the world. What does your Brussels office do? International law? How does that impact the members of the association? You mentioned BT, so I'm assuming you've got some non-U.S. based customers as well or association members as well. Talk to me about how Brussels and the U.S. your D.C. office. What kinds of issues are you guys both working on and how are they of alike and how are they different? Sure. Well, I will share that uh, in, in both both Brussels and the U.S. We are, uh, we, we, you know, we have mostly U.S. companies. There are a few that are non-U.S., Rakuten and others. But um, the, our, the mission in Brussels is the same as ours. They support uh, the membership and they support, uh, you know, U.S. technology competition and innovation. And sometimes there is a connection. There is uh, our paths cross and we, and we align on things. For example, in the EU, they are uh, working against the Digital um, uh, Digital Digital Millennium Digital Media Act, 
and the uh, the DSA Digital Services Act, uh, which are companions to and, and well similar to the U.S. Uh, um, antitrust regulations that we have put before us today that we'll be talking about. And in the same instance there, the DSA and the DMA are targeting U.S. tech companies, which again are the most preeminent in the world. So uh, even there, uh, Europeans are taking, um, you know, having their opportunity to, to do new opportunities to do tech regulation, which are focusing on our companies. And we have problems both at home and abroad, and you know, frankly, around the world, because our companies and the ones we mentioned in particular, the larger ones, Google, Facebook, Apple, and Amazon, are so successful. They're in the crosshairs around the world. So, so are those DSA and DMA? Are those both um, EU uh, pieces of legislation? Is that those what they are, are? Yeah, those are EU pieces of legislation, uh, which it. which also will be uh, targeting. Uh, U.S. companies, the same ones that I've that I've mentioned. Yeah, and is it is it? And I apologize for not understanding those bills. Are they uh, taxing or are they um, uh, limiting competition or a little of both? Is it, in other words, different sets of fees and whatnot, or is it just uh, specifically aimed at um, anti-competitive uh, measures? Well, all of these bills are are um, sort of like. You know, Wolf and sheep clothing—they're—they're they're all touted to be focused upon competition, but they have the adverse effect of targeting and breaking up, uh, taxing, as you said, uh, our our companies. And the impetus for doing so is different in different jurisdictions. Uh, I know in in Europe, I mean, uh, the European economy has uh, struggled a little bit during the during the COVID times, as have most economies around the world. And so the DMA and the DSA are ways to to tax U.S. companies to help bolster the economies of the European I companies see. and also to allow uh, European companies to to grow, right, uh, and, and and compete against U.S. companies. And similarly, the U.S. The U.S. has uh, tech in its crosshairs for a number of reasons. Uh, some believe that that tech is just too big, and as a result, because it's big, they think it's bad. But big by itself doesn't mean it's bad. <laughs> big means you're successful. Uh, and as long as you're not doing anything that is anti-competitive, usurious, bad for people, bad for consumers. And, um, you know, tech is also, at least in the United States, it becomes a very political issue. Whether it's content moderation or antitrust, it is very politicized. And so... We live in a place. Are there currently any bills on the House, Arthur, or excuse me, are there any bills on the Hill period either side that are addressing um, or, or, or moving through the system? Is there anything coming down the pipeline in the U.S. Uh, around our tech companies? Any legislation? Sure, yeah. Well, there's a lot of legislation, a lot that's being introduced on the Senate side. Uh, as we speak, there are a number of bills that are of interest and that uh, the world is watching, frankly, with uh, the House Judiciary Committee and the Senate Judiciary Committee. They recently introduced six bills on June 11th, 2021, after the culmination of a about an 18-month uh, investigation into the tech industry. And the result of that was a 450-page report that the uh, staffers wrote looking at the tech industry and examining uh, various various companies and component uh, technology companies. And we have these bills, and then the bills were introduced on June 11th. Shortly after the bills were introduced, they went quickly through 
uh, a markup. They're one of the processes by which bills get ready for floor consideration. And the bills dealt with all manner of things uh, related to antitrust. Some increased the merger filing fee bills or the merger filing fee, uh, merger filing fees for large scale mergers. Some dealt with um, data portability, users being able to port data from, from one place to another. Uh, another bill uh, was an acquisition ban bill. And that bill uh, prevents these covered platforms, which I should define what they are, covered platforms from acquiring any other company. And there are two other bills that are moving that have had the most traction recently. And that is H.R. 3816, the American Choice and Online Innovation Act, uh, which is a bill by Chairman Cicilline. It's a non-discrimination bill. And H.R. 3825, uh, you know, put forward by Congresswoman Jayapal, is, its title is the Ending Platform Monopolies Act. And it's a bill that's aimed at getting rid of conflicts of interest. And essentially what it does is it means that covered platforms have to um, – they're prevented from acquiring tech startups, and they're also required to sell certain lines of services that benefit the covered platform. And so it, it's a it's a breakup bill, basically, uh, breaking the companies up into its constituent parts, which ultimately all of these bills in tandem, and they have overlap overlapping jurisdiction, all of them will affect the services, as I shared before, that we know and that we've loved and that we've used. And so when you're looking at Amazon Prime or Amazon, after these bills, should these bills become law? It won't be the same. These bills will break those things. If you're talking about preloaded apps on, on your iPhone, for example, you know, these bills will break that uh, and cause that to, to not exist any longer. And so ultimately, again, as I shared, it's consumers that will lose, consumers that may potentially pay more for these services, consumers that may not have access to these services. And again, the critical thing to remember here is that these services now are nominal costs. You know, if you're an Amazon Prime subscriber, you pay $129 a month or a year rather, and you get uh, free shipping on Amazon Prime eligible goods, for example. And so that's a service. Uh, and of course, with, with uh, Amazon Prime, you get the goods in two days, three days, all free day shipping. Arthur, you scared me when you said a month. I was like, wait a minute. No, I paying monthly, one hundred twenty nine. I know, I know, I know. I just for for a second, I was like, "Wait, my daughter told me it was once a year." But hold on a minute. <laughs> uh, and so um, one thing, one thing I just wanted to share too. I was talking about how these bills, uh, and I just went through the litany of bills, uh, the competition bills in particular, which are getting the most traction and the most play. I mentioned the word covered platform, and I want to define what the what the covered platform is. And Great. So the yeah. bills themselves define it. On the House side and the Senate side, they, they have a similar definition. And it's basically an arbitrary definition. <laughs> the covered platform under the bill is defined on the House side as a online platform that has $500 billion in market capitalization and $50 million active U.S.-based monthly users or... 500 billion market capitalization and 100,000 US based active monthly business users. And so when you add that formula, that gobbledygook together, you get Apple, Amazon, Facebook, and Google. And the question was asked even at the markup that I'd shared uh, with you about on, on June 23rd, uh, shortly after the bills were introduced. The question was asked whether Microsoft was included, and there was no straight answer. And that markup, was a 48-hour markup. It lasted 48 hours. 
because of the acrimony and the concerns that people had on both sides of the aisle with the bills in terms of how they were written, the rapidity with which they were written, it is unusual on the on the House or the Senate to have a bill be introduced and then have it, to have it go immediately to markup. And so these bills were introduced around June 11th, and the markup occurred on June 23rd and June 24th of 2021. So these these are newly newly new bills, little baby bills that are growing up, and uh, it's causing a lot of attention and getting a lot of coverage, as I mentioned, uh, because not only will it affect the services, it will affect us. And so uh, constituents, voters, consumers really ought to be paying attention, letting their members know um, they're not with it or supportive of these bills because um, it, it, they, they, ought, they ought to know about it and they ought to be active and, and take a participatory role because ultimately it's, it's them that that's going to uh, feel the brunt of this. And I always look for the what's in it, for what's in it for me or the, the what's in it for people. The what's in it for you is that you could lose the services that, that, that we've talked about. So I'm assuming uh, CCIA is working to either change these bills or stop them uh, from an industry association standpoint. Is that an accurate assessment? That's yeah, that's absolutely right. We are we are looking to to change the narrative or stop these bills, and uh, that is not to say that you know we don't think there's an opportunity for Congress to act. We're not saying Congress shouldn't do anything. There are opportunities for Congress to act. I mean, what Congress could do that would be, that would be beneficial for industry as well as consumers is provide something like federal baseline privacy. Right now, there's a hodgepodge of state laws providing private provi providing privacy. And uh, businesses and consumers would benefit from having certainty, knowing what is the federal baseline, what is the federal government providing and allowing for here. Uh, also, you know, there are agencies that their sole province is to conduct investigations and carry out investigations on on, on these companies and other companies, and. Um, uh, it, it's not for the Congress to step in and regulate how companies should regulate their businesses. And that's really how we view this at CCIA is that these aren't antitrust bills because antitrust deals with the regulation of markets. These bills, um, the four or five, the five bills, they pick winners and losers. They, they arbitrarily decide which companies are in scope, which companies are out of scope. And as a result, it's, it's anti-competitive by itself and discriminatory on its face. Because if, if the ideas that the Congress was trying to put forward, if they were truly good ideas, they should apply across the board. And we, we don't have that here. And, and it's, it's dangerous because particularly now in the situation where we're in a technology race with China and other adversaries, and it's real. And I say it's real because, you know, every day we're seeing uh, articles about Chinese surveillance against U.S. companies uh, and, and U.S. citizens. There are cyber attacks that are, going, that are happening with, with great frequency. And so these bills are regulating the business practices of just a handful of companies, U.S. companies, but there's a complete pass to foreign companies. There's no regulation of foreign companies. Foreign companies are not required to break themselves up. They're not forbidden or prevented from from acquiring startups like like these bills are doing for for our US companies. Um, and so the beneficiaries, the true beneficiaries of these bills are potentially our technology rivals, Russian Russian companies, Baidu, Tencent, TikTok, I can Yandex, I can go on and name a, a bunch of them. They're the ones that can that can that can acquire the startups that the US companies are forbidden to to acquire if these bills become law and they can also acquire 
the broken up Googles and Apples and Amazons, the little Googles, the little Apples and Amazons, because there's no prohibition about whom they can acquire and what they do with it. And, and it's also dangerous because allowing China and Russia entree into our technological ecosystem, I mean, they're, they're already involved, but, but allowing them in this way, where there's, mandate, where there's mandates by the U.S. government, where U.S. companies have to interoperate, for example, with these companies, share U.S. data, share U.S. IP uh, sensitive data, certainly uh, provides a national security risk, a risk to, to users, to user data, and to uh, the security of the system itself. Uh, and so it, it brings in a host of unintended consequences that I'm not sure that the Judiciary Committee on either the House or the Senate have thought all the way through. And so I think national security should be paramount. And the other thing I'll say is so that, so that some of the listeners aren't saying, well, you're, you're crying about a boogeyman. National security is not a boogeyman. There are articles uh, that have indicated that President Xi, as early as 2018 or as late as 2018, said that he was going to invest $1.4 trillion in the Chinese tech sector to overtake the United States. So one, it's no doubt that we are, we are the preeminent uh, tech sector. We are preeminent, preeminent when it comes to chip production, quantum, uh, quantum computing, AI, et cetera. Uh, but the Chinese and our competitors realize that, and they want to beat us in that race. Uh, and you know these bills, which can help the Chinese misappropriate intellectual property and other data, trade secrets, um, these bills were a boon or, or a boon to, to Chinese companies. Yeah, I always uh, I think you, you beat me to it. The law of unintended consequences, right? The thing, the problem you think you're solving, there are problems you create when you think you're solving one problem, and and you, you might be all well intended in the problem you solve and not notice the problem you created in that solution. That's uh, I think that's always something to think about. Arthur, you mentioned um, the 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 um, competitive nature bills, and you mentioned these two by name: thirty eight sixteen and thirty eight twenty five. There's something about being a publisher and not being a publisher, and are these platforms a publisher? What's what's that? Um, <laughs> law or rule? What, what's that one that we hear a good bit of talk about as well? That is content. That falls under content moderation, section 230. Um, and it deals with how a platform uh, is able to take information, uh, put information up and take information down. Um, uh, that's content moderation. And so that also is very topical uh, and has been an issue that has come up a great deal uh, in the in the Congress uh, and in prior Congresses and even this Congress, uh, with respect to removal of um, you know child sexual abuse material and, and and other things, and I will say that uh, tech companies do a good job of moderating their services. Uh, I know they're under fire. You know, content moderation is is a, is a messy job. There there are no you have bright line rules, uh, but uh, but there's also rules that occur and and decisions that are made. Uh, in the moment, right? And so what we hear a lot from conservatives in particular, when I go and talk to conservative offices uh, on the Hill, is that there is an anti-conservative bias uh, in that uh, uh, platforms, if you will, take down uh, content that is conservative. And that's simply that's simply not true. It, it's anathema to the business models of the platforms to take down uh, conservative information. Uh, but 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 the platforms do have a do take down content that is harmful, uh, that is misinformation, that is disinformation. 
um, you know, whether it's about COVID or elections or voting, you know, they, they do take that information down to make sure that the public is protected. I mean, the important thing to, to note about content moderation, these are private companies. They have terms of services and terms of use that all of us uh, click and abide by when we when we join it. Maybe maybe you didn't read it. Perhaps perhaps you ought to, but but there are rules of the road that um, that the platforms have with with users, and and users should should abide by that. Uh, but yes, the the the, the platforms do uh, uh, remove content that is harmful or um, uh, dangerous. Uh, they have an obligation to do so, and um, uh, they they do a good job at, at doing that. And of course, right, you know, so there, there, there are detractors. There are people that say, you know, they don't take down enough or they don't catch everything. And there are others that say they take down too much. And, and we find that even in that discussion, it's split along political lines. We hear more from conservatives and GOP offices that uh, these platforms take down too much. They need to let more information uh, uh, stay up. And then, uh, you know, Democrats say they're, they're putting too much stuff up, you know, more progressive offices uh, saying there's there's too much stuff. There's all this bad information about COVID, misinformation about elections, misinformation about whatever. And and frankly, it's dangerous to, to communities. And I think that's a great question that you asked, Raymond, because I think that ties into why tech is in the crosshair. You, you probably are saying, well, look, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, nobody was talking about big tech or tech, tech, tech. And now all you hear is tech, tech, tech. And they're not chanting in a happy way, like, yeah, we support them. Like the chant is, yeah, we, we, wanna, we, we want to get them. And so <laughs> there, there has been an about face because of, I think, some content moderation concerns, uh, the fact that the companies are successful, that they are big. Uh, but the companies, uh, as I say, they're, they're doing their jobs. They're doing what they ought to be doing. They're not getting a pass. And when you look in the papers every day, not only do you see information about tech and how the Congress is going after them, tech is involved. You know, they're being scrutinized by, by everybody, uh, by the public. The public has their opinions. And then not only that, you also have opinions by, by agencies. So agencies are investigating the companies. And um, yeah, there's, there's been a change in how we view technology. We're no longer the, uh, uh, the, the, golden, the golden people of the world. Uh, we are in everyone's crosshairs. But uh, nevertheless, I think it's, it's great to work for CSEI because we're championing the good fight and we're ensuring that people have access to the technology that they need. Uh, and that, again, that, that we, really, we really enjoy. I mean, no one uh, would have qualms about uh, Amazon Prime. You opted, uh, Raymond, and, and you're, to, to, to pay for Amazon Prime, so you find the value uh, in that service. We all enjoy getting, I know myself especially, during the pandemic, it's been great to order something online and have it come in two or three days or one day. It's phenomenal. It makes life very convenient, very easy, and uh, that's the beautiful thing about tech. Tech has become so integrated, and when I say integrated, this the system's themselves have become integrated. For example, the, you know, using Google, Google, um, Google search and Google maps, they're integrated systems. So, you know, if you were to do a search right now on your computer about best pizza places near you in Dallas, the results would appear organically and in search, and they would also appear uh, simultaneously in Google maps. And that's convenient because then you know, hey, I only have a half an hour. I got an hour to get to Pizza Hut or wherever I'm going. I want to get there, get my food and come back. Well, these bills that we're talking about, in particular, 3816, the American Choice and Innovation Online Act, would prevent 
a covered platform from uh, because it's called a non-discrimination bill. It would prevent a covered platform from preferencing uh, the covered platform's own products, business, service, or, or, or lines of service over another uh, over another business user. And it also says that all business users have to be treated the same. And so now uh, that Google search you just did, because it was so integrated with Google Maps, that's a preference, which now is illegal under the bill. And when it's illegal, what that means is the penalty for, inf- for infringing upon that is 15% of the revenue of the covered platform. That's a lot. These are multi, you know, billion dollar companies. Uh, that's, that, that's, that's huge. Um, and there's also greater powers to the agencies that I've already talked about that are conducting these investigations like the FTC and the DOJ. So there's widespread injunctive relief powers. And so going back to the, that example, when you're searching for best pizza places near you on Google, and let's say this bill became law and the FTC brings a lawsuit uh, and they seek an injunction, what does that mean for, for the rest of us? If we're enjoined from Google, Google search isn't just going to stop the Google search for you. It doesn't cut off the valve just for you. I don't know. You're talking about unintended consequences. I don't even know how that would work from a practical standpoint. But but the bills are, are fraught with problems. Um, and um, yeah. <laughs> complex problems call for complex solutions. Arthur, you mentioned that uh, you know our chant against tech has changed in the last decade. Uh, did make me think. Uh, uh, you know, people um, success breeds contempt, uh, and I think we can think of a, a you know a current or modern day uh, you know iteration of it. F- folks don't uh, um, uh, you know you think of, think of in mine and your childhood the Pittsburgh Steelers were a bit loved and hated because they were a dynasty. Uh, heavy is the head that wears the crown, right? I think right. Uh, is, 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 is what's happening to our tech friends as they continue to grow and be successful. Uh, that breeds some contempt in the marketplace, just like we think of our, our greatest sports franchises that are people love to hate here in Dallas. The Cowboys uh, haven't been good for a long time, but there was a while there where people love to hate the Cowboys too. Um, all right, Arthur, we're going to come full circle. Here's my last question for you. Uh, this has been great to understand what CCIA does for the tech industry and 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 for consumers. Um, what I'd like to hear is, in your twelve years on the Hill, what's the one piece <laughs> of legislation that either out of Mr. Johnson's office or Miss Jackson Lee's office that you're the most proud of, and why? That'll be a great way for us to end. Mm, these are great, great table topic <laughs> questions. Uh, um, yeah, so so many pieces of legislation you're working on, you know, performance rights. Uh, uh, legislation over the years, uh, which has allowed artists on terrestrial radio broadcasting to, to get paid, um, and um, that that was that was interesting uh, and, and very helpful and and, and needed and under the Music Modernization Act. And um, I'm trying to think, there's, there's so many different things that that we worked on, from uh, issues related to criminal justice reform and. Uh, working on uh, equalizing the crack cocaine sentencing disparity, which has nothing to do with technology, but certainly right, yeah. is something that that is that is topical and it affected you know generations of people where uh, their you know parents and loved ones and, and family members were were um, uh, incarcerated for uh, long periods of time because of that that sentencing disparity, and so it's not one to one with with crack cocaine, crack and crack crack cocaine and crack. Cocaine and, and powder cocaine, cocaine, right? Powder, thank right. you, powder cocaine. 
It's obviously not an area of expertise for either of us. <laughs> right. <laughs> so I knew where you were going. Thank you. Yes, but 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 it but it is small. I think it's I think it's ten to one. So it's so it's it's better incremental steps. And um, you know, certainly a lot of the criminal justice work that I worked uh, worked on with Mr. Mr. Johnson um, was was very near and dear to my heart, and was helpful to the community. Some of it uh, did not get uh, passed into law yet, but they were still great great ideas that uh, were helpful for society. One of the great things about working in the Congress is you you have a lot of quixotic and idea, uh, you know sort of idea, ideological ideas, right? I, ideological things that you want to get put forward. And, and so the Congress and the, and the members of Congress sometimes will, will suffer that with you and allow you to really put your imprimatur and try to help be of service to people uh, and constituents. And so we, we worked on all kinds of really fascinating and fun things and had the opportunity as a result to meet a lot of interesting people. You know, I think to your point we raised earlier, everything is about connecting with people. And uh, if we're not connecting with people and helping one another and lifting one another up, then then what is the point? What is the point of being in these roles? Whatever role we're in, whether we're doing podcasts, whether we're doing you know serving as a VP for an association, whether we're serving as a, as an attorney for the government, um, or you know at the House of Representatives, we should be of service to each other. Here, here. Well, Arthur, I think that our uh, our political discourse focuses far too much on what separates us. Um, I always find when I spend time with friends of mine from the other side of the aisle that uh, we agree on 80 or 90 percent of life, and there are a very few things that we disagree on, and even in those, we disagree on them in, in matters of shades. There are almost nothing that we're diametrically opposed on, and I know that doesn't make for interesting TV or radio or newspapers, um, but I find we have far more in common with each other than we have uh, uh, in in, uh, in opposition with each other. And I wish we'd focus on that more uh, than anything else because uh, I think we're all generally trying to do the same thing, raise healthy families and, and balance kids and provide and uh, uh, and love each other well. I wish we'd focus on that far more than other things that, that – separate set us apart well you said this was your first ever podcast arthur you did awesome you're a fantastic guest easy to talk to we loved having you so much so we think we're gonna have to have you back to talk about more legislation and time on the hill and more business in ccia as we watch uh, hr 3816 go through and 3825 uh it's really been fun having you thank you so much i appreciate it thank you for the opportunity i, I enjoyed talking with you it's been great to, to share some ideas and thank you for inviting me on on the show 